0: I think probably the first thing is try to imagine yourself in this person's situation. Often with a Japanese company, you don't actually volunteer for a transfer. They will transfer you where they need you. And often this is done away from your family as well. That's tough as it is. But then to be sent to a country where maybe you only have a reasonable grasp of the language. So I'd say to people in that situation who are the local staff, Imagine this the other way around. You're sent to this person's country on your own. You speak a bit of the language, but you've never been there before. You don't know how the place runs. If you're finding yourself frustrated with this person or annoyed at how they do things, or they're not communicating well, try and understand what it would be like.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of Intercultural Insiders. My name is John McGraw, and I help newcomers, expats and businesses connect across cultures to succeed in less time and pain. I am the founder of Hyaku Coaching, which is dedicated to helping you create your pathway to success in a new culture. The purpose of Intercultural Insiders is to share the stories of people with intercultural experiences. So if you're feeling isolated or lost, you can hear something from the guest's experiences that could help you, even if it's just a reminder that you're not alone. I would also like to mention Intercultural Insiders Info, which is now the new way to get your information and stay on top of what's coming up on Intercultural Insiders. This replaces the LinkedIn Live event invitations that have been showing earlier. So if you want to know about upcoming episodes, The best way is to subscribe to the newsletter. Issues come out roughly every two weeks, so tune in to find out more about the upcoming episodes. And with that, I'd like to talk about today's guest, Andy Ford. This is a special standalone episode. Andy is a translator and a former broadcaster for NHK, which is a public broadcaster in Japan, similar to the CBC in Canada or the BBC in the UK. Now, Andy was based in the UK, so he was working in a cross-cultural experience inside his own country. So he talks about his experiences working for a prominent Japanese broadcaster in the UK. So without further wait, let's get into the interview with Andy Ford. Welcome to the show. Why don't you introduce yourself?
0: Hi, John. Thanks for inviting me. i am been very lucky over the years. I left school at 18, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I worked in finance for about a year and a half. And I met someone there who was traveling and I put the idea into my head that I'd like to travel. So I went off on my own at 19, went to New Zealand for four months, spent a year in Australia. And when I was in Australia, I became friends with a Japanese guy. I'd never met anyone from Japan before. I couldn't find Japan on a map, I'm quite sure didn't know the language, but he said, when your fixer expires, why don't you come and visit me or stay with my friends over in Tokyo on your way back to the UK? So I did that and ended up staying there for two years. I worked in an English language school to pay for my studies, and I went to a Japanese language school every morning from nine to one. And then I came back and enrolled in university. And about three months after I got back to the UK, I passed the top letter of the Japanese language proficiency test, which is in two years and three months is pretty good going. Uh, I'd never had an interest in languages before, but when you go and live somewhere, somehow it really encourages you to study hard and you've got to know what's going on around you. I worked at a production company making corporate videos and commercials and things like that for a a Japanese chap in the UK. And then I ended up working mostly for NHK, which is Japan's public broadcaster. The biggest broadcaster in Japan. And I was there 18 years as a producer and researcher. We would get research stories all over Europe for a Japanese audience. And during that time, I visited 18 different countries. I met people from Nobel Prize winners to prime ministers and sports people. I've been really lucky. I never thought I would do that. And it's not something I ever planned, but it worked
1: out. I'm just amazed when you list off all of those opportunities. It just shows the power of what can happen with just a little connection.
0: Absolutely. If you go out into the world and you start meeting different people, opportunities open up to you. It's crazy what can happen, but you just need to make your chances and go out and meet people and go to different places. And it's amazing the opportunities you can come across. How did
1: the acquisition of the language help you with adapting to the culture and maybe vice versa. I
0: was very lucky in that I think my friends helped me find this school in Tokyo called Kai in Shiokugo. And it's a fantastic school. They have this policy where they won't have too many students from one particular country. So they draw in students from everywhere. And I had classmates from Iran and China, the US, Italy, France, all sorts of countries. And so when you're with these guys, there's no common language. It forces you to use the Japanese, the other policy they had was they would introduce us to things about Japanese culture. So we do a Kibana flower arranging or we'd go to the tea ceremony and stuff like that. But as you say, because there are certain things you say in some languages and not in others, that's related to the way people think. And it's things to do with interpersonal relationships and how you view the world. And having that knowledge through the language, I think makes it easier for you to fit into a Japanese company, because the way they work, the way you're supposed to speak to people and things like that. And I think on the flip side, those employers, you look for people who, even if they don't speak the language, have at least spent some time over there. Because the way we do things in the UK, we, they do things in Japan are pretty different. Things move along better if you have that theater background role just to why things are happening in that way and what to avoid and what to say in certain circumstances and things like that. Having that background, even without the language, just makes it a wee bit easier to fit into an organization and understand what's going on.
1: Yeah, I think there's a much greater tie with Japanese culture and Japanese language. Whereas with English, because it's become a lingua franca, there is more of a separation between the culture and the language. Well, of course, that's to be expected, but mm. being aware of when you are in... A different cultures, such as being in the UK or in Canada and being aware of some of those differences, which you might not automatically learn from picking up the language because of that separation. It's, it's certainly valuable.
0: I think you're right. As you say, it's a lingua franca. And so there's Indian English, there's American English, Canadian English. And again, those will reflect the individual cultures. Yes, but I think sometimes actually, we imagine that because we share a language, we share everything in the culture and so in this country, we get a lot of news from the U.S. And I look at it and I think the U.S. is a very different country to the U.K. But because we share that language, people assume that people have the same way of thinking. And we really don't. I think English, British people are more closely in line with Dutch or Swedish or some of the guys on the continent than they ever are with Americans. And Don't get me wrong, I go to America a lot and I like it. But the culture and the way of seeing the world is vastly different. But going back to what yeah. you said... Japanese are the only people who speak Japanese and it is very strongly rooted in the culture and what have you. And other countries haven't taken it and adapted it and done different things with it. And even
1: if one can't communicate perfectly, at least having some ability and the awareness of the culture, I think in many ways is maybe just as, if not more valuable than having more advanced skills and not being aware of the culture.
0: No, you're absolutely right. Like you said, to get very good at a language like Japanese, takes time, it's a big commitment, especially if you want to be able to read and write the language. The people who have lived in the country pick up those little human interaction type things. You don't learn from a book, but you pick up. And The people have different mannerisms, like this means come here in Japan, and this means me, and just little things that you pick up go an the long way.
1: I'm curious about some of those things that you learned about certain aspects of the culture.
0: There are certain things to do with what you wear on your feet in different situations. You would never ever go into somebody's house wearing your shoes. That is an absolute no-no. So that's something you would only do once. And then you'd change slippers to maybe go into a d- different room and things like that. There's obviously the thing with the way you address somebody. Japanese has many different ways of saying I and you, depending on levels of formality. I remember going around to a friend's house and being served to see by a very polite, very graceful mother. And I'd been learning Japanese from my friends who were a bit rough, shall we say? Or I remember using the wrong pronoun. I wanted to say, oh, thank you so much, that's delightful of you. It was more like, yeah, cheers, love. lovely, is You learned it later and you sold your head in your hands with it. That is a big part of Japanese culture, it's the hierarchy thing. And at first, you know what, these things seem ridiculous. And having more than one way of saying you or I, you just think, oh, that's crazy. But when you get used to it, you really appreciate it. And you realize that there are different ways of doing things and they make a lot of sense. And they help you to understand situations. You could listen to two people go, "Okay, that guy is the boss. Just from hearing how they speak over time, you learn, yeah, there are different ways of doing things, which can be just as good.
1: I think anyone who's interacted with another culture experiences that. I certainly did. But as you said, I think realizing that there are different ways and more importantly, understanding the reasons for that. It also gives you, as you said, a perspective on your own culture and realizing, oh, okay, so what are our reasons for saying just I or saying me? It really just expands your understanding and awareness of your own culture. I would say people who are born... In Canada, particularly English-speaking parts of Canada, there's a sense, oh, we don't really have a culture because they're thinking about it just in terms of food, the way they dress, the visible things. But culture is much more than that. It's much deeper than that. It's the values and the assumptions. And then once you realize that, you can take a more of an open and critical eye to your own culture. I'd
0: say the only time I have ever had a culture shock is when I came back to the UK after I'd been overseas for two, two and a half years, a year of that in Japan, six weeks in Korea. And I came back and yeah, it really hit me how different things were. It was shocking. Philosophers have come up with very good expressions about how you don't see your own culture best until you leave it. And it's true, it sounds like a cliche, but it's utterly true. You can see the good and the bad. Being a bit more objective about where you come from isn't a bad thing. Incidentally, speaking of the language, if you translate English very directly into Japanese, you realise how often we say I and me. And you say that in Japanese, it sounds incredibly egotistical. It just sounds crazy, because often Japanese won't even use I. In fact, using you is great. You would use somebody's surname.
1: While you were in the UK, you worked for NHK in your home culture, but then you're working for a very prominent company that's based out of Japan. How was that experience?
0: It was great. I look back now at some of the experiences I had there. I feel very privileged to work there. At times, it's tough because, for example, you say NHK, big, well-known corporation. No one in Japan would not know NHK. In the UK, that's not the case. So whereas saying I'm from NHK might open doors in Japan, in the UK, people would say, What is that, Hong Kong TV? So there's that kind of mismatch, which you have to manage people's expectations. As somebody who's the person who understands Japan, knows the UK, you're often in the middle and having to balance those two sort of perceptions and the reality. Sometimes people coming to us from Japan didn't quite understand that our place in the company was very different to theirs. It wouldn't matter how long you stayed there, you would not become the director general at NHK. That's fair enough. And language is a big part of that. But I think some people would come with the sort of Japanese mentality of the work ethic. And if your colleagues are there, you stay there, whatever time it is. It's fine to call people late at night. It's fine to ask people to come in the next day on the weekend. that. It's news. And so to an extent, that's fine. It's what happens. But... I think sometimes it was difficult when people expected you to work like you were a Japanese person in Japan, and your situation was different, your motivations were different. And I'll be honest, sometimes I didn't handle that brilliantly. There are times when I was probably not as patient as I should have been, or maybe not even as polite as I should have been. But generally, it was great. It was an amazing experience, and I worked with some clever people. I think one regret I have, there are times probably when I should have been a bit more patient. And the times when I should have, especially as someone who speaks a foreign language, should have maybe cut people a bit more slack about the language. But no, on a personal level, it was amazing.
1: Looking back at that to someone else who is in a similar situation, what advice would you give to them?
0: I think probably the first thing is try to imagine yourself in this person's situation. Often with a Japanese company, you don't actually volunteer for a transfer. They will transfer you where they need you. And often this is done away from your family as well. That's tough as it is. But then to be sent to a country where maybe you only have a reasonable grasp of the language. So I'd say to people in that situation who are the local staff, imagine this the other way around. You're sent to this person's country on your own. You speak a bit of the language, but you've never been there before. You don't know how the place runs. If you're finding yourself frustrated with this person or annoyed at how they do things or they're not communicating well, try and understand what it would be like. So that's the first thing. I suppose the other thing is to make your colleagues aware that you are there for them. If they do have any problems with the language or the culture or the way things work, that you are more than willing to help them with those questions. I think sometimes if you don't understand a lot of stuff, it can be embarrassing to ask. So I think always make it clear that you're happy to answer questions. And I think good communication in understanding why somebody's doing something eases a lot of tension and frustration. Good communication and empathy, that applies to a lot of situations.
1: I couldn't agree with you more about awareness and empathy, adjusting not just to any culture, but to any situation. It's easy to think, okay, just give me a list of things I need to remember. Here's how you hand your business cards. Don't point with your chopsticks, for example, those kinds of things. And they can certainly help in the short term. But I think that if you just go on those, you're still in the same mindset of these are quirky things I need to remember. But when you actually start to really understand on a deeper level, it's a much longer term lasting than just remembering a list of do this, don't do that.
0: I think you're right. I think both of those things are necessary. That's sort of practical things like the list of do's and don'ts. So at least you're not insulting someone or getting off on the wrong foot. But the deeper things take more time and are an ongoing thing. And then you probably can't learn from just a list. I almost wish that there was a space every week or every month have people get together and say, okay, why is this happening? Or when somebody says such and such, it doesn't mean to be rude and make that space so that any ongoing queries and concerns and troubles you can address and overcome. Because I think a lot of times relationships break down. Part of it is misunderstanding. And thinking you'd be wronged when you haven't. And a lot of that can be unintentional. And I think having an ongoing process where if something was playing on your mind, you can ask somebody who knows the culture and explain it to you. I think that would be a big help. A lot of companies would not think to do yeah. that. I think that's a shame because it is partly about people getting on well, but I think you would get people more motivated. And with that, you're going to get things in the long term, right? Less start turnover. People yeah. are going to stay with you longer, right? Yes. They're going to be more motivated. They're going to be happier in their jobs. And that's got to be a good thing. I think I fell with colleagues who fared better. They were either people who had lived overseas for a while, so they knew the way people communicated, that maybe people were a bit more blunt or used comedy a lot more, or people that would ask questions when they were stuck in a situation and say, I'm sorry, I don't understand what that is. Or, Andy, what's your opinion on this? And if you're employing bright people who want to be there, it's good to ask their opinion from time to time. People feel included and motivated and necessary when you do that. But some colleagues wouldn't do that. But I think they'd be embarrassed to ask if it's a really simple thing. But I think if you can have an office or a company when there is that space To address queries or things you're not understanding, it can clear the air. Having that space to discuss that sort of thing and ask somebody who knows the culture can really help. I think I'd have liked to have done that more. I don't think I probably did it enough. But sometimes in a busy office, that can be tough, right?
1: Yeah, the humility to realize that you don't have the answers and the confidence to show that you don't know. Of course, it is difficult to ask people to do that on their own at times, particularly if they're concerned that it may affect how they're perceived in their job. Which
0: which people do worry about. None of us want to show our ignorance. It's not a good feeling. There's an expression in Japanese which translates that to ask is a moment's embarrassment to not know is a lifetime. But it's tough. also wonder if it would be good if people had a third party they could go to, something external. I'm not saying that just to promote court, cool because with a stranger or a third party, we can open up a bit more, can't we, than we yeah. can to people in the office with every single day of the week. But I think that would smooth things along. And I think a lot of frustration is from not being given enough information, misunderstanding people's motivations. Again, it boils down some better communication, doesn't it?
1: And speaking of that, can you think of particular situations from your own experience when you learned those reasons that helped you to adapt better or vice versa, where you were able to help others to understand and Mm. that helps them to adapt?
0: And I want to avoid cliches, but there is a big thing in Japan of making decisions by consent. So a lot of people will be consulted. There'll be a discussion, and then, you know, it's a time-consuming process. If you're used to being in a situation where your bosses were doing that, that can be frustrating. So at least knowing what's going on, and the fact that if somebody were to just make a decision on their own, they would look really bad in front of their colleagues. It was still frustrating, but at least you had a bit more understanding why that was going on. I think, also, a lot of people who work in businesses like to keep information to themselves. Being left in the dark about stuff, isn't good. You feel frustration. You can't make informed decisions about how to work and how to proceed with things. And also, it makes you feel undervalued. I'll give you an example. Even to this day, I don't know the reason, but the doorbell goes to our office, and I opened the door. A young chap is standing there. He introduces himself quite expectantly. And I said, Okay, that's nice. I'm pleased to meet you, but can I help you? And he said, Yeah, I'm starting working. And it was first I heard of it. And if this was a company of 200, 300 people, they might be in a different realm. This guy was actually going to be training. He was going to be sitting next to him and I was going to be training the guy and helping him for however many months to get used to the job. And no one had thought to tell me. And apart from being bad and that you can't plan and make decisions about how best to proceed, you do feel undervalued when that happens. That's something that I think some companies where you do have different countries working together with different languages, you need to avoid falling into the trap of an us and them. I think that can be no. very damaging to a company. It can create tensions and frictions. And yeah, generally that wasn't the case in my experience, but i come down to with communication, I think, and explaining. Everyone know, wants to feel involved and part of the team. You know, and if you're not getting information, which directly affects you, that can be a bit of a punch in the gut.
1: And that doesn't necessarily just apply to national cultures also. When you think about corporate cultures of companies merging, it brings up another point that you mentioned prior to the session today about the importance of compromise. Maybe examples of how that may have occurred in your experience in the corporate environment, any thoughts about that?
0: Yeah, I think if you are working in a cross-cultural situation, there's got to be give and take. The people from head office coming in cannot expect the local people to work in exactly the same way as their colleagues back home. And I think for that you need to understand why people have joined your company in London, what they're going to get out of it, and not have quite the same expectations as you would have people back home. And again, I think that's where dialogue and communication comes into it. I think the people who found it easier had experience working. Or living in other countries. Like I said to living in Japan, I look back on my own country and saw that there was something free we do, which maybe aren't the best way of doing things. People who've had that experience find it easier to make compromise and understand people's motivations. It's give and take, isn't it? Did I succeed at that job? Was I always the most diplomatic person? Absolutely no. And there are times when if you feel you're being asked something which you don't feel is right or you think it's unfair, then you do need to stick up for yourself. And that upsets some people I work with. And I can see that, but there are times when you think, no, hold on a second, you're asking me too much. And again, that comes down to cultural understanding of when you really shouldn't be asking people to work or phone them and things like that. In news, it's slightly different. I was on call 24-7 for 18 years. don't miss that side of things. Yeah, there is did give and take.
1: And I think that comes into having a better understanding of what's important to you and what you're willing to adjust to. There is the idea that to succeed in a place, you have to completely assimilate. Once you come to a new country, it's best to hide any kind of differences. And I think it's important to adapt. To a certain extent, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you completely change who you are. So oh, I'm in Japan, I'm working for a Japanese company, so I'm going to be as Japanese as possible, or mm-hmm. I'm going to be a completely British, or I'm going to be completely Canadian. But I've heard some people who adapt successfully say, when I'm in this situation, I'm of this culture, the culture that I grew up in, but in other situations, I'm a little more like this culture. A uh, bit of a fusion, so you're not mm-hmm. giving up who you are. And the values mm. you came from but you're adding on those things and understanding mm. that what you have the origins that you come from you bring a mm. certain value and this is something that's reflected in many corporations now that are not only more diverse but particularly inclusive or tend to be more profitable than those that either are not so diverse or don't incorporate it so well
0: when i look back on my time working at japanese companies and i think when you look back on things you realize they have changed you as well and whilst there were things that drove me crazy working for these companies there were things that i've really learned and benefited from i learned tenacity there's an expression in japanese which means when you try something on the basis that it won't work just give it a shot anyway and that sometimes pays off that i really learned and things like also politeness and being aware that maybe your colleague can have to stay late at least acknowledge them and say, sorry, I'm going ahead. Just those little interpersonal things. I think talking about the sort of sometimes when you have to stand up and maybe speak out if you think something's wrong, I think that's something a lot of companies around the world should embrace because you do need people to say, listen, this is bad for our image or this is the wrong direction or people are unhappy because of X, Y, and Z and encourage people So express an opinion, I'd probably express my opinion too much, but when I left NHK, I got a book of messages from former colleagues. And one of them actually said, your bluntness and stubbornness were both a burgeon and a treasure. It's true, I was blunt and stubborn. She said, it's because you had integrity and cared about the company. And I think if you don't care about someone or something you don't keep quiet. I think that's something all corporations, all organizations should encourage. Listen to different voices. Like you're saying, people have different perspectives on things and can see things that we can't see ourselves. You're employing people presumably because you think they're dedicated and smart, right? If, If that's the case, you've got to value their opinion, however many levels down the hierarchy they are to you. I think also if you create an environment where people speak up you avoid making big mistakes as a corporation. I read the Japanese newspaper every morning. And on the same day, once there were two companies that were featured that had suffered from bullying. And the reputational damage that brought onto to them was big. And if you have a situation where people are able to speak out and their voices are heard, you can avoid that sort of thing. And if you are operating as a foreign company in a country, You need people to say to you, actually, in this country, we don't use that word, or we don't say that, or when people are doing X, Y, and Z, the company's responsible for this. Because it might seem like a nuisance or a pain to have to listen to people. In the long run, you can save yourself a lot of trouble. And corporate damage and things going badly for you if you have courage death space because in space your local staff are your experts. Much of the time they've lived there all their lives. They absolutely know about the country. We're coming closer to
1: the end of our time here. I'm curious, what kind of things are you up to these days?
0: Yeah, so I left a few years ago. I took a full year out, just away from everything. It was so nice not to be on call. I then did a course for people looking to change careers. And it makes you examine what things excite you and interest you and what don't. And from that, I've been working on my translation skills, things like that. So I think what I'm aiming to do now is a bit of translation. It's another thing that's undervalued. People don't realize quite how hard that is. So I'm looking to do some regular translation work, but I want to find a sort of mentoring, supporting role I like that where I can help people to become their best and overcome problems and go on and grow. When I taught English, I loved it in Japan, when someone made that breakthrough. So I'm looking to do that mentoring, teaching kind of stuff. And again, maybe work with Japanese people who are struggling to adapt to uni or work in the UK or with English and be able to explain things or listen to questions in Japanese. That's what I'd want to do.
1: I think there's so much value. Here And not just people who are specifically looking to work with Japanese adapting to different situations in general.
0: I really feel it is an ongoing thing, it's not a one-off. Oh no,
1: it's a lifelong journey. Like any kind of learning, it is, it really is. So that was the interview with Andy Ford. Coming up is episode 35 with Meher Mardoyan, who is a job search coach for immigrants. This is going to be on LinkedIn Live, and Meher will be live in the comments to chat. So I encourage you to turn out for that and ask your questions and comment during and after the interview. That's on Wednesday, July 12th at the usual time, 12 p.m. Eastern. So make sure to tune in for that. We'll have a lot of useful information about looking for work for immigrants. Until then, keep navigating your way between cultures towards your goals.